This is unit eight in our module, People in Business. This unit is about individual differences. So it has a lot to do with people and personality and how that influences behavior in organizations. So we'll start by looking at some key characteristics of individuals, which include concepts of individual differences, self-awareness, skills, and abilities, and how that all fits into the organizational context. We will also critically investigate the idea of perception and its implications for both individuals and organizations, and we'll also have a look at the concept of bias. So we'll be looking at individual skills and abilities, things like emotions and self-awareness, perception and the process of perception, and finally, we'll look into the ideas of attributions and as they coincide with biases. And all of this regarding the impact of these things in the organizational context and human behavior in organizations. We'll start by looking at understanding individual differences. There are several different views we can take on the idea of individual differences. Obviously, people are people, individuals are individuals, and each person has their own personality, their own way of thinking, their own way of perceiving, their own way of doing things. An interactionist view takes the perspective that individual differences are hereditary and also come from the environment. So both your genes, your natural makeup, as well as the environment, will influence the, the development of individual differences. So this is kind of that nature versus nurture idea. Part of who we are and our individual differences is based on nature and the other part of who we are and what makes individual differences comes from the environment. Hereditary aspects of individual differences come obviously from our genetic makeup. They may also be related to things like uh, your race and ethnicity, your gender, so these all have an early influence on personality. As far as environmental influences go, these are shaped by culture, by education, by your actual physical location, your physical environment, the geography of where you grow up, your parents, your friends. All of these things also influence your personality and the individual differences that are associated with that and then how that impacts your behavior. So all of these individual characteristics can have some kind of an impact on your individual abilities. They will have some kind of an impact on the skills you develop as an individual. They have an impact on your behavior and that means personality traits. How do other people perceive you? They'll also have an influence on the values you hold, which will also in turn influence the action you take, 
and the behavior that you display. And all of these aspects also have some kind of impact on your behavior in the workplace, on the behavior of individuals in the workplace. So let's have a closer look at some individual characteristics. There are three major individual difference characteristics that, for example, can affect a person's leadership style. It could be skills, which are acquired talents, acquired abilities that a person develops related to specific tasks. Abilities, which are also called aptitudes, which might be a natural talent to do something, whether a mental ability or a physical ability. And then we have personality. This refers to a set of psychological characteristics that make each person unique. Next, we want to look at the idea of self-awareness. In terms of our characteristics, there's a strong agreement that one defining characteristic of virtually every great entrepreneur or manager or leader is the idea of self-awareness. We discuss in the field of organizational behavior a concept called the trinity of self-awareness, which means know thyself, improve thyself, and complement thyself by adding others with different skills to your team. One way of thinking about and developing self-awareness is to focus on skills development. So our individual characteristics provide a behavioral zone or a range of behaviors that come naturally and feel comfortable to us because they reflect who we are. But as we have said, the situation you're in, in an organization or in uh, normal life, may demand that we change our behavior in some way. So developing a strong sense of self-awareness is a really important aspect of, for example, leadership, but also for interacting with people in the workplace and in your life in general. So how do we develop self-awareness? Let's have a look at the process of self-awareness. There are several things that a person can do to develop self-awareness. First, you need to be what we call a reflective practitioner and engage in self-reflection, engage in reflection in action and reflection on action in order to allow practice to provide a kind of laboratory where your learning can take place. So what that means is when you find yourself in a situation that may be uncomfortable or where you feel like you need to present some leadership abilities or enact some kind of leadership or influence processes to take a moment and reflect in action and try to see how your behaviors are influencing the behaviors of the other person, how their behaviors are influencing you. 
and to try to use that situation as a laboratory for becoming more self-aware and for learning what you might be able to change in your behavior. Through reflection, you can develop your personal narrative about who you are, what you value, what you stand for, and what your personal mission is. So the, you can reflect in action in the situation as a laboratory, and reflection on action is the type of reflection you do after you've had some kind of an experience to kind of dissect what went on and what you can learn from that. And this type of self-reflection can help you gain a deeper understanding of what you want to accomplish, what your values are, and how you might go about accomplishing that. So in addition to your self-narrative, you can enhance your self-awareness by being attentive to feedback that you receive from others, whether you receive that informally through personal conversations or formally through, for example, performance evaluations and appraisals. The information gained through these interactions can provide you with the knowledge about how others perceive you and can offer opportunities for improvement, for identifying areas for improvement. The third thing that can be suggested for developing self-awareness is to practice and consider self-disclosure. Self-disclosure requires that we reveal ourselves to others through verbal and nonverbal means. Self-disclosure is an aspect of authenticity and in turn an aspect of authentic leadership. We disclose our beliefs, our values and desires not only through conversation but also through artifacts, so things that we have, hold, wear, whatever, artifacts, and nonverbal communication. Self-disclosure also affects the way in which others see us. And self-disclosure, because it's an aspect of authenticity, is another way of creating trust and looking to have that sort of reciprocal agreement with the people you interact with. Now we'll look at skills and abilities. What is the relevance of skills? Well, the skills that are most relevant to managers are divided into three categories. We have technical, interpersonal, and conceptual skills. Technical, skills means knowledge of job processes, of methods, of tools, and techniques. Interpersonal knowledge has to do with your knowledge of interpersonal relationships, including communication, conflict management, negotiation, team building, or some people may refer to these interpersonal skills as emotional intelligence. Then we have conceptual skills, and this has to do more with cognitive abilities, such as problem solving, logical thinking, decision making, creativity, and reasoning in general. So these skills have an impact on managers. As leaders and managers move up the organization, they 
should or they tend to rely less on technical skills and rely increasingly on interpersonal and conceptual skills. This is due to the fact of the nature of the decisions and the activities that are taken on at higher levels of management. It's important to know that although skills can be learned and can affect a person's behavior, there tends to be a lag in time between learning a skill and translating it into actual behavior. And the, that translation of learning into practice is an important aspect of um, learning and development in human resources management. Do you actually take what you have learned in a training situation and put that into practice? The importance of abilities for managers has to do with uh, being able to succeed in organizations. So abilities are required for managers and leaders in order to be successful in organizations. Exam uh, for example, intelligence is considered to be a factor of leadership. However, the link between intelligence and effective leadership remains unclear. And there will be different views on this uh, in terms of abilities as talents. We hear the word talent management in human resources management. And talent is one thing and natural ability is one thing. But oftentimes it's persistence and hard work that will have a larger effect on uh, success and performance than talent in and of itself. So next we want to look at our next section. So this is the end of our first section on individual differences. In the next section, we'll be looking more closely at personality and personality traits. For part two of our unit on individual differences, we now turn to personality and personality traits. We start by looking at the Myers-Briggs Myers -Briggs inventory. This is a uh, the Myers-Briggs Trait Inventory, MBTI. And this is a, a way of looking at personality that was developed based on uh, the work of the psychologist Carl Jung, who was a, a German psychologist uh, back around Freud's time. So the Myers-Briggs uh, Inventory is a way of measuring personality traits. We'll start by trying to understand the importance of traits. Each characteristic and trait of an individual plays a role in how people interact with others, as well as how people make decisions. These characteristics can be useful tools for self-awareness and understanding, and can be used as guides, for example, in leadership development. So the Myers-Briggs inventory has been used quite frequently and for a very long time in organizations um, as a tool 
for assessing leadership skills and assessing uh, for leadership development. Some of the characteristics that we look at when we look at traits it come from, as I mentioned before, the psychologist Carl Jung. Carl Jung describes several aspects of the human psyche based on the way in which we take in and process information. So Jung's framework also includes our orientation to the external world. For example, uh, in the trait of extroversion. And he also includes our orientation towards the internal world or introversion. In addition to this, Carl Jung's work looked at two modes of decision-making, one that relies on perception and the other that relies on judgment. It also takes into account the way that people may look at the same situation and see it in completely different ways. So we've got the thinking and perceiving way of looking at things and different types of doing things and thinking about things will reinforce and need one another. Some people will adapt to some tasks naturally, while others on the other end of the spectrum will have to exert much more conscious effort to do certain kinds of tasks. So if we look a bit more closely at this diagram on our slide, this outlines the MBTI groupings that were developed from Jung's work. So on the one hand, we've got introversion and extroversion. Which is part of, for example, being enthusiastic uh, would be extroversion. An introvert might tend to be more inwardly looking and uh, may display less enthusiasm in their behavior. So these dimensions that are shown here are showing the difference in the way people may uh, make decisions. We've got on the one hand the perceiving end that is represented by P and the other one is by judging which is represented by J. And the way we take in information would be either through S, sensation, or through N, which is through intuition. So do you take in your information by uh, actually going off of your senses, um, what you see, what you feel, what you touch, what you hear, or do you uh, go off of your intuition or your feelings? So on the sensation end, if we were combining that with somebody who makes decisions on perception, we would see that in the quadrant of the artisans. So people who are sensing and perceiving would be tending to have those personality characteristics shown in the quadrant of artisans. On the other hand, let's go down to the lower right hand quadrant of the model we would have the idealists who would tend to take in information through intuitiveness and would be more on the, the feeling end of understanding the world.
rather than the thinking end of the of understanding the world. So this is just one part of the model of Myers-Briggs traits inventory groupings. Next, we'll turn to a different model of understanding personality called the Big Five. Big Five personality traits is one of the major ways of understanding personality and has been used extensively in leadership research. These dimensions, however, are not as widely known or used as the Myers-Biggs Tate inventory. In the big five personality traits, personality traits are categorized into five, five categories. They include extroversion, openness to experience, emotional stability or instability, uh, which is characterized by neuroticism, conscientiousness and agreeableness. So several of these dimensions are related to work relevant behaviors such as career success or academic success and performance on global assignments. Among these dimensions, conscientiousness is the one that is most strongly correlated to job performance. Conscientiousness can be understood as uh, attention to detail, as well as a person who is uh, reliable and gets the job done. Extroversion also has some impact on job performance especially jobs that require a lot of social interaction, such as sales or even management. However, extroversion is not necessarily the alpha and omega of leadership, even though self-confidence is often considered to be a major trait associated with leadership. Extroversion is not a requirement for success. Other dimensions in the big five, like openness to experience, can also be helpful in some aspects of work. People who are open to new experiences may be more motivated to learn and to explore new ideas, or maybe even in terms of leadership, take risks. And they may be more successful when working in new environments or in working in areas where they have to shift environments often. Uh, the final two dimensions appear to be less related to organizational performance. But I, research in this area is still quite uh, sparse. Now, some degree of emotional stability is obviously needed to perform in the workplace. And individuals who suffer from instability uh, or from mental health problems may be less likely to perform their best at all times. Agreeableness may be desirable in social relationships, but it is not a factor directly related to job performance. So in order to understand this, you need to know what agreeableness means. To be agreeable means that people like you. So it's a, it's a matter of likability, but agreeableness also has to do with things like a uh, person who does what they're told, 
who is willing to make compromises and so on. And these types of behaviors are not necessarily directly related to success in job performance. Next, we turn to the concept of emotional intelligence. There are generally four components related to emotional intelligence. Self-management, self-awareness, which we mentioned before, if you remember, social awareness, and social skills. So let's have a closer look at these. Emotional intelligence describes the social and interpersonal aspects of intelligence. Emotional intelligence was brought into the mainstream of management research and management literature through Daniel Goleman. And although other researchers have progressed with emotional intelligence, oftentimes EQ, or your emotional quotient in emotional intelligence, is equivocated with the work of Daniel Goleman. There are four components of emotional intelligence. The first one is self-management, which is the ability to control or redirect disruptive impulses and moods. It has to do with your ability to regulate your own behavior, coupled with an ability to pursue goals with energy and persistence. And it also includes self-control, trustworthiness, integrity, initiative, adaptability, as well as things like being comfortable with ambiguity, openness to change, and a strong desire to achieve. So those are a lot of components that are related to self-management. Next, we look at self-awareness, which is, as we mentioned before, an ability to recognize and understand your, yourself, your own personality, your own skills, attributes, and traits, and behaviors, but for emotional intelligence, this adds in your self-awareness of your own moods, your own feelings, your own emotions, your own drives, as well as how these things, your moods, emotions, and drives, will affect others. Self-awareness is also comprised of three further elements, emotional awareness, accurate self-assessment, and self-confidence. Individuals with a high degree of self-awareness will understand the emotions they are feeling and will understand why they are feeling that. They recognize the links between their feelings as, as, and what they think and say. They also recognize how their feelings affect their own performance. And they will have a guiding awareness of their values and goals. Next, the third component of emotional intelligence is social awareness. This is described as the ability to understand the emotional makeup of other people and skills in treating people according to their emotional reaction. Social skills, the fourth component of emotional intelligence, includes things like effectiveness in leading change, even leadership skills, conflict management skills, influence skills, communication, and expertise in building and leading teams. So social skills involve proficiency in managing relationships and building networks to get the desired result from others, to reach personal goals, to build rapport, and to find common ground. So you see how these social skills are 
closely related to leadership. But social awareness, self-awareness, and self-management are also very important aspects of good leadership. The next aspect we want to look at in terms of individual differences in personality are values. So we'd like to start with an understanding of values and understanding the importance of values. The importance of values is that values lie at the core of a person's behavior and play a significant role in unifying one's personality. Personality, as we've discussed before, refers to a person's character and temperament, whereas values are principles that a person believes. And both of these things, both personality and values, guide our behavior. Like personality, values are shaped early in life and are highly resistant to change. They're also heavily influenced by culture. And we will differ in our level of value maturity. So different instrumental values are held by individuals at different stages of development. So one thing we can say about values because of their nature of shaping your behavior, they can impact your career choices as well. Now we can understand values uh, through a certain model of characterizing the types of values. So fundamentally, values can be categorized into two different types. That would be personal values or, uh, wait, sorry, that would be instrumental values versus terminal values. So. Instrumental values describe desirable conduct or methods for attaining an end. So that means your instrumental values are your means to an end. So what are your conduct and methods for achieving an end, such as being honest or being kind or working hard? These are all examples of instrumental values. So if I value honesty, I would see honesty as an instrument towards achieving what I would like to obtain, and that would be, for example, trust or building relationships. Terminal values are understood as desired states or as end goals. So you see, those are the ends to which your values, uh, the thing that you value. Uh, For example, a terminal value might be happiness or health or prosperity. And so you see how these two things interact with each other. I might be of the opinion that hard work will lead to prosperity. So my instrumental value of hard work can lead me to my terminal value of prosperity. Or I might be of the view that kindness can lead to happiness. So my instrumental value of kindness will lead me to my terminal value of happiness. So you can see how our values will shape our behavior. And as mentioned before, when you differ on your level of value maturity, 
Different instrumental values will be held by individuals at different stages of development. So younger people may have instrumental values such as having fun. And they would see that as leading to the terminal value of happiness, for example. Whereas folks who are in a later stage of their lives, um, such as myself, I might uh, consider my happiness, my end goal or my terminal value as being more closely attached to things like having good relationships with my family. So that's one way of looking at values. Next, we want to look at something related to this idea of personality development and people developing different stages of values or, for example, of uh, moral decision-making. So what we're looking at now is the Kohlberg model of moral development. So to understand Kohlberg, we need to have an idea of human development. So basically, Kohlberg was basing his idea of moral development on ideas coming from the field of educational psychology from a, a researcher called Jean Piaget. Jean Piaget developed his theory and model of understanding developmental stages of children. So we could understand that very, very young children only have certain cognitive abilities. And as they progress in age, their ability to learn things and to develop both motor skills, technical skills, and cognitive skills, as well as social skills, will shift and they will mature into higher levels of cognitive skills, technical skills, motor skills, etc. So Kohlberg took this idea of Piaget that young people develop certain cognitive skills as they mature and thought, Kohlberg thought that humans will also develop through stages of moral reasoning of taking their values and making decisions based on those values and understanding what is uh, an ethical decision or an unethical decision and that this development would also be impacted by what they're valuing or what uh, reasoning they would make in terms of why they would make that ethical decision. So basically what Kohlberg is saying is that we have different stages of moral reasoning throughout our development and that moral reasoning can be developed to higher levels. So the Kohlberg's model of moral development has three stages, the pre-conventional level, the conventional level, and the post-conventional level. At the pre-conventional level, moral reasoning and instrumental values are based on personal needs and wants and on the consequences of these acts. So basically, at the pre-conventional level, we make ethical decisions based on the fact that we would like to avoid punishment or receive some kind of, an of reward. So we see our moral decisions based on our own 
individual needs and desires. Uh, as an example, if a child uh, would like to have a cookie, that's a need, a desire, for example. But uh, they've been told you can't steal cookies from the cookie jar. Now, they might try this out once because they want that cookie so badly and then they would get punished. So they develop this, uh, this instrumental value towards their, and their terminal value. The terminal value is getting that cookie and having the pleasure and joy of eating the cookie. And the instrumental value of um, you know, wanting to please your parents or you want to avoid punishment. And so you see at the pre-conventional level, they learn that it is unethical to take the cookie out of the cookie jar without first asking permission from your parents because they know that if they do it without permission, they will get punished. So that's considered pre-conventional level moral reasoning. Now at the conventional level of moral reasoning, people have come to a stage where they behave morally because they are conforming to standards that are determined by society and they would make moral decisions based out of respect for others. So respecting others, being aware of others' needs and uh, needs and their situations is valued high, more highly than, or at least at the same level as your own personal needs. So that is what we call the conventional level of moral reasoning and moral development. So at this level, you could take a situation such as when you're out uh, in public and um, you're self-monitoring your own behavior in terms of how loudly you're speaking or laughing with uh, your conversation partners. And the reason that you're making that decision to lower your voice is so that you wouldn't impinge on the conversations of the people around you. So you're taking and respecting your environment and the needs of others. At the post-conventional level, right and wrong are judged on the basis of internalized principles of the individual. So this is a higher level of reasoning and taking into universal values uh, more into account. And according to Kohlberg, very few individuals actually reach this level of moral maturity. So an example of this might be, uh, let's say hundreds of years ago when people still held slaves. And it was actually legal to held, hold slaves. And most of society that you lived in agreed that that was okay. At a post-conventional level of reasoning and moral decision-making, a person might come to the understanding and belief that holding slaves is is bad both for the people who hold them as well as for the slaves themselves. And they start developing this concept of human rights, which would be more of a universal kind of value. And for that reason, you would be using that higher level or that post-conventional level of moral reasoning to say, the way we're doing things is wrong and this needs to be changed. Now, the Kohlberg model of moral development is one way of understanding how instrumental values and terminal values impact our behavior. They could impact our 
decision-making behavior, as well as our moral reasoning as to why we make those decisions. And in this way, these values, this understanding, impacts not only our career choices, but also the way we behave in organizations. Now, the last thing I think it is that we want to look at in terms of personal values is Redden's personal values inventory. Redden's model of personal values describes six different value orientations. A theoretical value orientation is held by a person who's interested in ordering and systematizing knowledge, likes to reason and think, and is rational and analytical. A power-oriented person is interested in the use, the implications, and manifestations of power. So that would mean that power is something that they value. An achievement-oriented person is practical, efficient, and concerned with obtaining results. And that value is associated with achievement. Now, people might also value industry, or an industry-oriented value would be a person who likes to work and sees work doing stuff as an end in itself. Now, that might be the type of person who is a workaholic, somebody who can't sit still and always needs to be doing something. Uh, Another value might be financial values. So a financially oriented person is interested in the power of money and in the rewards for effort and personal gain. And if we think about what we were talking about earlier with young people at different stages of maturity in their values, you might think that younger people in some generations were very financially oriented and would say, oh, the only thing that I care about in my career is making as much money as possible. So knowing your value orientation, <coughs> excuse me, Knowing your value orientation and generally what things you value allows you to develop more self-awareness. And that can help you set priorities and make career choices that are most appropriate to you. So I hope you can see now from looking at these concepts of personality and values, how this knowledge about personality and values can help you also develop a deeper self-awareness and how that self-awareness can also support you in your career development. So that was a fairly long segment from our unit on individual differences. And in our next unit, we're gonna start looking at perception. In this part, part three of our unit eight on individual differences, we'll now start looking at the concept of perception and the process of perception. So we can first understand perception as the mental process that we use to understand our environment. Social perception is the process of gathering, selecting, and interpreting information about how we view ourselves and others. Perceiving the physical environment is relatively objective and something that is testable. 
Information about people, however, is often subjective and open to interpretation. So you can understand how perceiving our physical environment, because we can touch things, we can see things, we can hear things, is fairly more objective, but the way we perceive human behavior and human intentions, etc., is much more subjective and may be much more associated with individual differences and individual perception. Social perception, therefore, is subjective rather than objective. When we interact with others, we cannot pay attention to everything at once. And so we also pick and choose what is more important or we pick and choose cognitively what we pay more attention to. So neuroscience, for example, has taught people a lot about the brains in the most recent years. And one of the things that we understand from neuroscience is that your brain simply cannot process all of the stimuli that it's getting at all times. We're getting visual stimulation, audio stimulation, we're getting stimulation on our skin from the air, from the environment, through our eyes, through the light, through movement going on behind me, etc. And when I'm having a social interaction, uh, I also can't necessarily focus on everything that I observe in that person or that I hear that person saying, etc. And so we all have our own kind of filters in our brains that's part of our individual perception and part of our individual differences that then helps our brain to understand or to filter out things and that's what we're doing. We're picking and choosing what we pay attention to. So you can understand how differences in individual perception and the way we cognitively filter information and pay more attention to one thing than to another can impact our behavior. So let's look at the three stages of perception. Three stages of perception include the attention stage, the organization stage, and the interpretation and judgment stage. So we're going to look in this part primarily at the attention stage, the organization stage, and the interpretation stage, and part of the judgment stage. But we're going to save another part of the judgment stage for the next part of this unit. So because the perception process requires us to select, interpret, and use stimuli and cues, the process is subject to considerable error, which can be a serious drawback. And this is what I was saying when I was talking about how our brains filter information and focus on one thing and maybe not another. One such error is called closure. And closure refers to how we fill in missing information to understand a stimulus. Closure is a crucial part of the perception process. The perception process requires us to select, interpret, and use stimuli and cues. What we see is subject to perception and therefore is also subject to errors. 
So as I was talking about closure before, when we engage in closure and we're filling in missing information to understand something, what do you think this is filled in by? Well, closure is going to be filled in by things that are part of our individual understanding of the world. It'll be filled in through our worldviews, through our values, through our individual differences. When we do not have all the facts, which is often most of the time, we rely on assumptions to fill in that missing information. And these assumptions will come from who we are, what we think about the world, how we have experienced the world, therefore our experiences, etc. So we've got the attention stage, which involves paying attention to signals from the environment. Then we have the organization stage. And in this stage, we organize that information that our filters have allowed through. And then we have the interpretation and judgment stage. In this stage, we clarify and translate information we've organized so that we can decide on its meaning. And so you can imagine when we're missing information as discussed with this idea of closure, that we would be, have filtered that out at the attention stage. We notice that the information is missing in the organization stage. And then we fill in that information in the interpretation and judgment stage. So let's look at each of these stages a bit more closely. In the attention stage of perception, we consciously or unconsciously select what we will pay attention to. And this is called our perceptual filter. So in the attention stage, our social perception involves paying attention to the signals from our environment. We consciously or unconsciously select what we're paying attention to. And so we're letting some information in while keeping out the rest that is using our perception, perceptual filter. Now we may do this consciously or unconsciously, but generally it's unconsciously. At the core of the perceptual filter is selective attention. That is, we pay attention to some, but not all physical and social cues. Now culture, for example, is one factor that determines what makes it through our perceptual filter during this attention stage. Salience is another factor that determines what makes it through our perceptual filter or not. Salient cues are those that in some way stand out more to us than others. We use salient elements and cues more heavily than others in that perceptual process. So what determines the salience of one cue as opposed to another? Well, generally, we pay attention to cues that are novel, for example, something that's new, something that's unusual. We also pay attention to cues of things that are brighter or more dynamic, things that capture your attention, or maybe things that are noisier than others. And so you can see that these are some of the strategies that marketing experts take advantage of. Why do you think every 
couple of years or maybe even every couple of months, your products on the shelf have changed something about them, new and improved, or maybe they've changed the color of some label on that packaging that is there to capture our attention, to become a salient cue. Factors that are visible and obvious are also likely to be more salient, right? So that changing of color, that new label. The intensity of stimuli is another factor that can affect salience. So the more often you see something, marketing advertisers are taking advantage of this part of salient cues, the intensity, by uh, adding in those sort of mini adverts on TV, if you know what I mean. Maybe you've seen this, that you'll have one advert that's, say, 20 seconds long, and then you shift to another advert, and then you'll see an advert for the first thing that's only five seconds long. That's one way of understanding intensity of salient cues. Let's look now at the organization stage. During the organization stage, we organize the information and we use schemas. Schemas are mental or cognitive models or patterns that people apply to understand and explain certain situations and events. So schemas can be understood kind of like maps in your mind. So through your experience, through your interaction with your environment, through your worldview, your brain develops these maps. And those are the maps you use to, to orient yourself throughout the world, to orient yourself in all kinds of social situations. So let's go and have a look at this. In the organization stage, we're organizing that information that our filters have allowed through. And then we group that information into meaningful, orderly, and useful sets. We assign new information, so something we've never experienced before, into categories that already exist and are familiar to us. We create relationships among the various parts, create new sets, uh, put things into bundles so that we can remember them more easily. So your, your brain is kind of like this major sort of uh, file system. So the process at work here is schemas. These schemas are frameworks that allow us to fill in information in social settings. So like I said, we've got these maps in our mind that tell us what the world is supposed to be like. And when we experience something, we can organize that into a schema that already exists and that we're familiar with. So that's okay, that's comfortable or some, it's, it's um, conflicting or adding new information and we have to first organize that and figure out what to do with it. And so people use these schemas in that closure process we were talking about earlier. Those schemas help us fill in missing information to help complete those incomplete pictures. And although we may be aware of some of the schemas we hold, usually they operate at a subconscious level. So let's have a look at schemas in work. Schemas are useful in that they allow us to process information quickly, right? So if I had no idea what it was like to be in a university classroom, then 
it would take more time and more effort to process the concept of being in a university classroom. A university classroom, we all sort of have an idea now because you've experienced this, I've experienced this, and I know, for example, when I walk into a university classroom, into that physical environment, I would expect to see certain things. I would expect to see tables and chairs. I would expect to see the room organized in such a way that there's a front of the room and there's a room for the students. The front of the room is the area where I would expect to maybe have some tools that the, that the teacher would use. And so when people start filling in to the classroom, you also have certain expectations. The students would go and sit in the area that's designated for students with tables and chairs. The teacher then would take their position at the front of the room and be using those tools that are available there. Now, if you walked into a university classroom that didn't look like this, maybe there were no chairs, no tables, maybe there's no computer, there's no screen, you might feel slightly confused. Uh, but your brain is telling you on the one hand, well, I know this is a university classroom because it's in my timetable and because I'm at the university and I'm expecting to be taught here. And so your brain would have to try to fill in that information until you get new information to help you understand that situation. So the schemas help us remember details and complete maps ideas of what we expect is certain phenomenon and situations. And when that information isn't there, it helps us complete those gaps in the closure process. So having these schemas and using schemas makes us very efficient in organizing information. And for that reason, they allow us to remember people and events better. Now I've experienced this a lot in my life that I'll know who my students are when I'm seeing them in the classroom. But if I run into them somewhere out in the city of Glasgow, I might not recognize them. I could walk right past them and not know who they are because it's in a completely different situation. And my brain just can't remember that face so well in that situation. So schemas can lead to error. We use closure, for example, too quickly to fill in information. We, we, that we don't have, and we may come to a hasty conclusion. Now, schemas are another aspect of how our brain works that is very resistant to change. Now, this resistance is due in part to our lack of awareness of the schemas we hold. So we can't really change something that we're unaware of that it actually exists. So, Another problem with schemas is that even once we are aware of them and they become salient to us, we still might not really be willing to give up on them that easily because these schemas are part of our worldview. And oftentimes we don't want to change our views or our perception of the way the world works very easily. So facing situations that don't fit into our schemas requires us to spend a lot of extra energy and also creates quite a bit of stress until we can interpret the information that doesn't fit correctly. Now, an excellent example of this at work is culture shock. So as you'll know, we develop schemas in our minds through culture. 
Our culture shapes the way we perceive the world, the way we think things should or shouldn't be. It shapes our values. It shapes uh, our personalities. It shapes our behavior. And when somebody finds themselves in a new culture, those cultural schemas that you've developed throughout your life may no longer work anymore. So, you know, culture shock can cause a lot of stress because your brain is constantly trying to adjust to these new ways of things, this new way of uh, traffic signs in a different language, new ways of people either shaking hands or not shaking hands, new ways of the way people communicate with each other, or even the way you buy a bus ticket. So that's a good example of how schemas work and what it looks like when something is not fitting into your schema. Next, we want to look at stages of perception, interpretation, and the judgment stage. In this stage, we clarify and translate information that we've organized so that we can decide its meaning. Through this interpretation, we make a judgment or form an opinion about the event or the person, and we decide the cause of the behavior. So this process is critical in organizations where a manager's job involves evaluating employees, customers, suppliers, and various other business partners. Now, there are types of information that we use in this interpretation and judgment stage. And we use this information in what we call an attribution process. So we use this information in this stage to make what we call attributions. So let's understand better what attributions are. Attribution has to do with to what do we attribute some kind of behavior? First, we consider whether the behavior we are evaluating is unique or distinctive to a particular task or situation. If the performance is specific to one or a few tasks and therefore distinctive to a situation, an external attribution is more likely. That means we would attribute external circumstances to that situation. So the second factor in making attributions is called consensus. If others behave simul similarly, meaning that there is some kind of consensus or agreement in the behavior among people, we are likely also to make an external attribution. So we are attributing behavior to something external to us. The last factor is consistency, whether there is a consistent pattern of behavior. Depending on what is consistent, we may make either internal or external attributions. So uh, an external attribution is attributing behavior to something external to us as an individual. An internal attribution means I am attributing behavior to something that has to do with me. Now, if there's consistency in the patterns of behavior that I'm experiencing, that I can contribute that both to myself, 
my actions, my perceptions, as well as to the acts and perceptions of external people. The attributions we make about others' behavior will determine our own actions. So if I'm attributing someone's behavior to their behavior, I'm making an external attribution. I'm saying they're behaving that way because of who they are or what they're experiencing. Now, when I think about my own behavior and I can say, uh, well, um, I, I, I was late to class today because uh, I was late to class today because uh, the person I was job sh- uh, ride sharing with showed up late. Okay, so that's an external attribution. It's not my fault that I was late. It's the other person's fault because they were late. Do you see? Now, an internal attribution may be that I say, well, I was late to class because I forgot to tell my ride-sharing person that I needed a ride. Okay, so I told them at the last minute and therefore they were late picking me up and therefore we were late together. Now, admitting my own fault in that situation is an internal attribution. I'm attributing the behavior of being late to something, my own intention, my own action, or my own failure. So, the process of making attributions about others is similar to that of making attributions about our own behaviors and actions. However, there are some key differences. So let's have a closer look at some of these differences. In the attribution process, this is the process of inferring and assigning a cause to a behavior. So that's what we call the attribution process. One of the first steps in the attribution process involves deciding whether the cause of a behavior is internal or external. So internal attributions. If you make an internal attribution, you attribute the cause of behavior to factors within the control or inside the person. These are factors that are permanent and stable, such as personality, values, or natural ability, or less permanent, oh, pardon me, less permanent factors such as effort or motivation. Because internal attributions refer to the person, they are also called personal attributions. Now we have external attributions. So external attributions happen when we think that factors outside of a person are the cause of a behavior. These are factors such as the physical setting, the task difficulty, the organizational culture, the presence and behavior of other people, or even simply luck. Good luck, bad luck. An external attribution, external to a person. Because external attributions refer to the situation as the cause of the behavior, they are also called situational attributions. So what are the elements of the attribution process? Attributions are a central factor to any social perception process. In managerial situations, most decisions regarding people require managers to make attributions about the cause of the behavior. So deciding the cause of the behavior or making attributions 
is essential to the manager's decision about what to do about an employee's good or bad performance. All personnel decisions regarding things like raises, training opportunities, promotions, disciplinary action, and so forth, similarly require managers to make attributions, to make, to decide why is that person performing well? Why is that per person performing poorly? Is it due to external factors or internal factors? So managers, just like all of us, are likely to overuse internal attributions and underutilize external attributions. So a, an example of this is when uh, an employee at work is engaging in poor performance or is having poor performance. Our first inclination is to say, well, that person is just not doing their job. Or maybe they're just lazy. Maybe they don't have the skills or abilities to do the job. So we are attributing that internally to that person. It's they are themselves to blame or there's some internal factor about them that is to blame. And we might fail to recognize that that person is underperforming because they don't have the resources they need to do the job. Maybe uh, they uh, haven't had the training they need uh, to do the job. So that would be an external factor. So in, further in the interpretation and judgment stage, we can look at attributions as making attributions about our own behavior. Our, in our, when making attributions about our own behavior, we tend to follow the same patterns to decide the cause of our own behaviors as we do to decide why others behave as they have. And this uh, is related to uh, considering our actions and behaviors and deduce our intentions and attitudes from them. Now, in self-perception theory, this refers to a people's tendency to look for internal and external factors when asked to explain the causes of their own actions. Self-perception theory suggests that we do not always behave intentiously or consciously know the cause of our own behavior. We do something and then we try to figure out after the fact why we did it. When we receive high tangible external rewards for our actions, such as a bonus or public recognition, we are more likely to see the external reward as the cause of our behavior. There are no clear external rewards. We tend to attribute our behavior to internal causes. So now there are some individual differences in this as well. Receiving an external reward, like a prize, for example, we might attribute to uh, the hard work we've done to achieve whatever accomplishment was necessary to receive that prize. Now, if you've ever heard of a phenomenon called, um, if you've ever heard of a phenomenon called imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome has to do with people who fail to understand that they do have internal attribution of receiving rewards. So somebody with imposter syndrome thinks that um, even though they received a reward, it doesn't have anything to do with them. It has more to do with the fact that the external circumstances uh, misinterpreted how good they were at what they'd done 
or maybe that the people who decided to give you the award have lowered the bar so low that somebody as terrible as you would actually be able to receive that reward in imposter syndrome. Now, we can also look at over-justification. Over-justification means the tendency to make external attributes about our own behavior when an external reward is given. Now, this is what I'm talking about with imposter syndrome. Over-justification has many implications for managers. It suggests that giving people substantial external rewards for doing tasks they enjoy may actually reduce their internal motivation to do the task. If the reward is large and important enough, people are likely to make external attribution. That is, they see the reward rather than their internal motivation as the cause of the actions. So instead of considering the fact that it's my abilities that are allowing me to achieve something, I'm only seeing it as, well, I want that reward so badly, I'm gonna do everything I need to get the reward. Their internal motivation to perform may be reduced and they may be less likely to perform as well unless they keep receiving those high rewards. So receiving a reward once that is externally attributed may cause a reduction in people performing if they don't keep receiving those rewards. So whenever possible, managers should emphasize internal factors and make them salient to maintain employees' internal interests and motivation. High public recognition can, uh, and reward can provide short-term results, but they may backfire in the long run. Misjudging an employee could have serious legal, ethical, and performance-related consequences as well. So understanding attribution is an important factor of being a good manager. So that ends this section on perception. And in the next section, we're going to look at bias. So that was a pretty long part for this unit. So bear with me. The next part should be a bit shorter. Now we're going to look at perceptual bias. So let's start by looking at biases and their descriptions. So what we're talking about with bias is errors in our perception. Perception can be inaccurate and incomplete. Like we said before, we pay attention to some but not all information. We use closure and schemas to be quick and to organize information. We make interpretations and judgment that are subject to biases and errors. These errors are, to a large extent, a normal and inevitable part of the physical and social perception processes. We can manage specific perception errors. Our perceptual abilities allow us to process a vast amount of information quickly and efficiently. However, this efficiency often leads to ineffective decisions because we do not process the information thoroughly enough or even correctly. We often take cognitive shortcuts, such as ignoring information that does not fit our expectations or by making assumptions based on perceptions rather than on objective facts. So perceptual biases are the shortcuts we use to be efficient but create distortions. 
These in turn will lead to mistakes and judgment. And when these biases operate, we stop gathering information and instead rely on assumptions to fill in the missing information. So in our list here, we've got fundamental attribution error. Now, previously, we talked a lot about attribution. So this is related to that attribution internal external factors. Fundamental attribution error is this tendency to underestimate situational factors and to overestimate personal factors when making attributions about others' actions. So essentially, fundamental attribution error has to do with overemphasizing internal factors that cause behavior and underestimating the external factors that can influence behavior. We've also got, for example, as uh, an example of perceptual bias is stereotyping, which is a generalization about an individual based on a group to which that person belongs. This can be considered a perceptual bias. Some others are the halo horn effect. This is the type of bias that occurs when you are using one characteristic to create a positive or negative impression about a person and use that to dominate all other information. We see this a lot in politics. The halo effect means that if I'm uh, a person who is an an acolyte of, of Trump, that I see all the great stuff he's done in business and think then to myself, because he's so great in business, he's a great president. Or the horn effect is when we take uh, a person such as um, Dominique Cummings and we consider something negative about that person. Uh, The fact that he's exercising too much influence on the people who are being hired for the government. And we would say, well, because he's got that too much influence, we then think everything that Dominique Cummings does is negative. So that's the horn, the halo effect. Uh, The self-serving bias is another example, which is a tendency to accept credit for success or to reject blame for failure. So you might see this in a person that you would consider rather egotistical. Uh, They use this self-serving bias to say, oh, of course I need to take credit for everything. And if something goes wrong, say, oh, I'm not gonna accept uh, responsibility for that. Okay, so let's continue on looking at bias and why it's difficult to overcome bias. First of all, if you remember that schemas are really difficult to change, personality is difficult to change, but it's difficult to overcome biases also because we have this need for consistency. We like to have schemas, we like things to fit into our schemas. We've become comfortable with who we are, the way we think, and the way we behave. And we need consistency, and these, this, this, these experiences develop into our biases. So channeling, secondly, reinforces our biases. That means um, channeling is a process of limiting our interaction with another so that we avoid receiving information that contradicts our own judgment. So what that means is that we tend to uh, be birds of a feather that flock together. 
Channeling is also called confirmatory hypothesis testing because we set up a situation to confirm our hypothesis about others. Research suggests that managers evaluating various opportunities use confirmatory strategies and as a result make poor decisions. So channeling can have a profound effect on organizational behavior. It also can be related to things like uh, groupthink. Uh, we've also got, for example, the Pygmalion effect or the self-fulfilling prophecy. The Pygmalion effect refers to the way in which the strength of one's expectations and perceptions cause those expectations to become reality. The myth of Pygmalion is used to describe the process by which our beliefs and expectations come to be reflected by others to the point that they behave in the way that we originally expected. So essentially what's going on is your own perceptions and expectations causes you to behave in a way that sort of coaxes other people into behaving the way you expect of them and therefore turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now steps in the attribution process uh, are, for example, one of the first steps is deciding whether a cause of behavior is internal or external. Perception biases in organizational settings have, can have serious repercussions. The organization may not treat individuals fairly and may be held legally accountable as a consequence. So you could see how stereotype bias could lead to legal consequences within organizations. Additionally, the organization may be deprived of potentially high performers and saddled with poor performers due to problems and biases in the attribution process. In addition to the serious legal implications, the potential of missed opportunities, of hiring the right people, giving the people the right opportunities due to errors in attribution, errors in bias, can be very costly to organizations. And in the end, the organization becomes the ultimate loser. Now, when it comes to managing biases, first, we need to be able to recognize that the bias is there. You can learn to recognize biases through informal and formal training. You can also help others recognize their biases. Cross-cultural and diversity training is a specialized type of training that can help manage cultural stereotypes and attributional biases. Such training can encourage participants to identify stereotypes they hold and recognize when those stereotypes may be influencing them and can help them to work on developing alternative views. So developing awareness in the areas and situations in which biases are most, most likely to operate can also help manage biases. Training can also help develop this kind of awareness. Maybe you've experienced this in um, unconscious bias training. Training and awareness alone, however, are not usually sufficient in managing bias effectively. So the third step is to offer constant reminders and support. Leaders and managers and organizations need to offer reminders and support to others to prevent them from reverting to old biases. Repeatedly and consistently, leaders need to discourage negative biases and reinforce the positive aspect of any stereotype group. Finally, you need to provide opportunities for frequent contact and interaction 
with groups and in situations that may be prone to bias. Given that biases prevent us from gathering information, any opportunity to interact with others enhances the chances that people will come across more objective information. So the less you engage in channeling and being a bird of a feather that flocks together, and the more you engage with different perspectives, different worldviews, different ways of thinking and engaging, that can help uh, reduce bias. Increased contact can help reduce stereotypes, the negative impact of the primacy effect, or attributional errors that we have seen can take place in the work environment. So you should look for chances to engage with people of different types, to engage with individuals who may have different views than yours. So that summarizes our unit on individuals, individual differences, personality, the perception process, and biases, and how that all relates to organizational behavior. And we can summarize by saying that these individual skills and abilities are important to managers, and different skills of individuals will be needed at different levels. In terms of personality and individual differences, emotional intelligence is, a, is an important factor of organizational behavior and also an important factor of leadership effectiveness. Our emotions give us information about our reactions to situations that we might not otherwise be aware of, and they reveal to us our needs and our values, etc. The challenge for managers is not only to develop self-awareness, but also to understand their employees' wants and needs. Information gained through self-awareness can provide you with knowledge about how others perceive you and offer opportunities for improvement. The perception process allows, uh, requires us to select, interpret, and use stimuli and cues. And because of each individual's experience, you may uh, have different perceptions and you may be missing information. So it's important to be aware of things like perception and closure and filtering. Although biases cannot be avoided entirely, awareness of potential pitfalls of bias and of the social perception process can help minimize errors in the organizational environment. So that's it for our unit eight on individual differences, personality, the process of perception, and biases.